The sermon text for today is Genesis chapters 48 and 49. We will read um, both chapters. Uh, there will not be a New Testament reading today, just given the length of the Old Testament text that is before us. Let's give our attention now to the reading of God's most holy word. After this, Joseph was told, Behold, your father is ill. So he took with him his two sons, Manasseh and Ephraim. And it was told to Jacob, Your son Joseph has come to you. Then Israel summoned his strength and sat up in bed. And Jacob said to Joseph, God Almighty appeared to me at Luz in the land of Canaan and blessed me and said to me, Behold, I will make you fruitful and multiply you. And I will make of you a company of peoples and will give this land to your offspring after you for an everlasting possession. And now your two sons who were born to you in the land of Egypt before I came to you in Egypt are mine. Ephraim and Manasseh shall be mine as Reuben and Simeon are. And the children that you fathered after them shall be yours. They shall be called by the name of their brothers in their inheritance. As for me, when I came from Padan to my sorrow, Rachel died in the land of Canaan on the way, when there was still some distance to go to Ephrath. And I buried her there on the way to, to Ephrath, that is Bethlehem. When Israel saw Joseph's sons, he said, Who are these? Joseph said to his father, They are my sons whom God has given me here. And he said, Bring them to me, please, that I may bless them. Now the eyes of Israel were dim with age, so that he could not see. So Joseph brought them near him, and he kissed them and embraced them. And Israel said to Joseph, I never expected to see your face, and behold, God has let me see your offspring also. Then Joseph removed them from his knees, and he bowed himself with his face to the earth. And Joseph took them both, Ephraim in his right hand towards Israel's left hand, and Manasseh in his left hand toward Israel's right hand, and brought them near him. And Israel stretched out his right hand and laid it on the head of Ephraim, who was the younger, and his left hand on the head of Manasseh, crossing his hands, for Manasseh was the firstborn. And he blessed Joseph and said, The God before whom my fathers Abraham and Isaac walked, the God who has been my shepherd all my life long to this day, the angel who has redeemed me from all evil, bless the boys. And in them let my name be carried on and the name of my fathers Abraham and Isaac, and let them grow into a multitude in the midst of the earth. When Joseph saw that his father laid his right hand on the head of Ephraim, it displeased him, and he took his father's hand to move it from Ephraim's head to Manasseh's head. And Joseph said to his father, Not this way, my father, since this one is the firstborn. Put your hand on his head. But his father refused and said, I know, my son, I know. He also shall become a people, and he also shall be great. Nevertheless, his younger brother shall be greater than he, and his offspring shall become a multitude of nations." So he blessed them that day, saying, By you Israel will pronounce blessings, saying, God, make you as Ephraim and as Manasseh. Thus he put Ephraim before Manasseh. Then Israel said to Joseph, Behold, I am about to die, but God will be with you and will bring you again to the land of your fathers. Moreover, I have given to you rather than to your brothers one mountain slope that I took from the hand of the Amorites with my sword and with my bow. 
Then Jacob called his sons and said, Gather yourselves together that I may tell you what shall happen to you in days to come. Assemble and listen, O sons of Jacob. Listen to Israel your father. Reuben, you are my firstborn, my might and the first fruit of my strength, preeminent in dignity and preeminent in power. Unstable as water, you shall not have preeminence, because you went up to your father's bed. Then you defiled it. He went up to my couch. Simeon and Levi are brothers. Weapons of violence are their swords. Let my soul come not into their counsel. O my glory, be not joined to their company. For in their anger they killed men, and in their willfulness they hamstrung oxen. Cursed be their anger, for it is fierce, and their wrath, for it is cruel. I will divide them in Jacob and scatter them in Israel. Judah, your brothers shall praise you. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's son shall bow down before you. Judah is a lion's cub. From the prey, my son, you have gone up. He stooped down. He crouched as a lion and as a lioness. Who dares rouse him? The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until tribute comes to him. And to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. Binding his foal to the vine and his donkey's colt to the choice vine, he has washed his garments in wine and his vesture in the blood of grapes. His eyes are darker than wine and his teeth whiter than milk. Zebulun shall dwell at the shore of the sea. He shall come, he shall become a haven for ships, and his border shall be Sidon. Issachar is a strong donkey couching, crouching between the sheepfolds. He saw that a resting place was good and that the land was pleasant, so he bowed his shoulder to bear and became a servant at forced labor. Dan shall judge his people as one of the tribes of Israel. Dan shall be a serpent in the way, a viper by the path that bites the horse's heels so that his rider falls backward. I wait for your salvation, O Lord. Raiders shall Raid Gad, but he shall raid at their heels. Asher's food shall be rich, and he shall yield royal delicacies. Nephtali is a doe let loose that bears beautiful fawns. Joseph is a fruitful bow, a fruitful bow by a spring. His branches run over the wall. The archers bitterly attacked him, shot at him, and harassed him severely. Yet his bow remained unmoved. His arms were made agile by the hands of the mighty one of Jacob. From there is the shepherd, the stone of Israel, by the God of your Father who will help you, by the Almighty who will bless you with blessings of heaven above, blessings of the deep that crouches beneath, blessings of the breasts and of the womb. The blessings of your Father are mighty beyond the blessings of my parents, up to the bounties of the everlasting hills. May they be on the head of Joseph and on the brow of him who was set apart from his brothers. Benjamin is a ravenous wolf, in the morning devouring the prey, and at evening dividing the spoil. All these are the twelve tribes of Israel. This is what their father said to them as he blessed them, blessing each with the blessing suitable to him. Then he commanded them and said to them, I am to be gathered to my people. Bury me with my fathers in the cave that is in the field of Ephron the Hittite, in the cave that is in the field at Machpelah, to the east of Mamre, in the land of Canaan, which Abraham bought 
with the field from Ephron the Hittite to possess as a burying place. There they buried Abraham and Sarah his wife. There they buried Isaac and Rebekah his wife. And there I buried Leah. The field and the cave that is in it were bought from the Hittites. When Jacob finished commanding his sons, he drew up his feet into the bed and breathed his last and was gathered to his people. So far the reading of God's most holy word. May the Lord add his blessing to the preaching of it today. It is hard to believe that this is the second to last sermon in this series through the book of Genesis. Um, if I'm not mistaken, uh, the, the, the sermon is, is sermon number 81. And so 82 sermons will do it for this uh, series. I should probably tell you, church, that my plan is to go to the book of Ephesians next. Uh, perhaps you could read through that little epistle once or twice before we begin, Lord willing, on March the 15th. I look forward to that study very much and have begun preparing for it already. Now, the passage that is before us today, as you know, is Genesis 48 and 49. And this passage that we have just read may be divided into three parts. One, Jacob's blessing of Joseph's two sons, Ephraim and Manasseh, that is chapter 48. Two, the testament of Jacob concerning his twelve sons, that is 49, 1 through 28. And three, the account of Jacob's death and his burial in 2933 of chapter 49. There are very many things that could be said about these two chapters. And in fact, I think I would go on for a very, very long time if I were to point out all of the nuances of this text, showing how these chapters reach back into the Genesis narrative, drawing upon previous themes and bringing them to a conclusion. Furthermore, these chapters do also prepare the reader for what is to come in the history of the nation of Israel. We must remember that the book of Genesis is the first book in a collection of five books written by Moses. Together they are called the Pentateuch. And these five books tell of the history of the nation of Israel and of the partial fulfillment of the promises made to the patriarchs, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. This is what the first five books of the Bible are about. They tell of the partial fulfillment of the promises made to the patriarchs. Now, clearly, the nation of Israel is here in this passage in embryonic form. In particular, the testament which Jacob pronounces upon his sons has a prophetic quality to it. It anticipates the day when these sons would become tribes within the nation of Israel through their descendants. Uh, now what I would like to do is consider each of these scenes uh, one at a time, as has been my custom with these large narratives. I'll make a few observations and draw a few points of application from each of them. And so let us begin by considering the first scene wherein Jacob blesses Joseph's sons, Ephraim and Manasseh. We know from the previous passage that Jacob had lived in Egypt for 17 years before the events of Genesis 48 transpired. That's a good long while that Jacob lived there in Egypt after having come down with the rest of his family being driven there by the famine. Notice that the scriptures do not say anything about the interaction between Joseph and his family during that time. We do not know for sure whether they saw each other often or very rarely, but one does get the impression that their interaction was very limited. We have to remember that these were ancient times. They did not have email or Skype. 
Uh, they did not have automobiles. Uh, they did not have planes. And so uh, the, the, the family of Joseph was set off a good distance from Joseph where he was there as a ruler in Egypt. And perhaps that helps us to understand better how their interaction was probably very limited for those 17 years. Travel was difficult. In verse 1 we read, After this Joseph was told, Behold, your father is ill. So he took with him his two sons, Manasseh and Ephraim. Later we will learn that this was the first time that Jacob met these grandchildren of his. We are to remember that these were Jacob's final words. And final words are very important. Notice three things about Jacob's interaction with Joseph here in this passage. One, notice that Jacob was very concerned to remind Joseph of the promises that God had made to him. In fact, this is the first thing that Jacob said. Verse 2, And it was told to Jacob, Your son Joseph has come to you. Then Israel summoned his strength and sat up in bed. And notice how he gets right to the issue. He begins to say to Joseph, God Almighty appeared to me at Luz in the land of Canaan and blessed me and said to me, Behold, I will make you fruitful and multiply you. And I will make of you a company of peoples. And I will give this land to your offspring after you for an everlasting possession. So he got right to it. He looked at his beloved son, Joseph, his son who had spent the majority of his life in Egypt, who was raised to the highest position in the land, who now enjoyed great fame, power, prestige, and wealth. And he said to him, in essence, don't ever forget about the promises, Joseph. Yes, you are the man in Egypt. Yes, the Lord has used you to accomplish a great salvation here. Uh, the famine had now passed, and indeed he had saved a great multitude from death through the famine. But Joseph, do not forget the promises that have been given to, to us, to Abraham, Isaac, to me, and now to you. These promises of God that were given first to Abraham, then to Isaac, and now to me, are more precious than anything found within Egypt and they are yours. God has blessed us, Joseph. God has promised to make us a nation. God has promised to give us the land of Canaan, and you are to never forget it. In essence, I believe that's what Jacob was doing with Joseph, the most Egyptian of all of his sons. Two, Jacob was concerned to remind Joseph of his heritage. Verse 5, and now your two sons who were born to you in the land of Egypt before I came to you in Egypt are mine. Ephraim and Manasseh shall be mine as Reuben and Simeon are and the children that you father after them shall be yours. And so if you take just a moment to think about this, it's a very powerful and moving scene. Jacob, on his deathbed, claimed Ephraim and Manasseh who were Egyptian born as his own. He says, these children of yours, Ephraim and Manasseh, they belong to me. Though they were Egyptians and though they were powerful Egyptians at that, they were to be regarded as a part of Israel's clan. It's as if Jacob said to Joseph, don't forget who you are. You are a Hebrew. You are a child of Abraham. You are an Israelite before you are an Egyptian. And so true is this, that your sons belong to me. They are mine. This is what Jacob reminds Joseph of in this passage. As I've said, I think this was a powerful and moving experience. It must have moved Joseph to stop and to consider his allegiances. Was he an Egyptian first or was he a Hebrew 
He probably struggled with his identity, having lived in Egypt for so long and having grown so much in that place, having been appointed to this position of great power. He was probably struggling with this. And what about his children? Were they to align with the Egyptians or were they to align with the Israelites? What was their heritage and where was their inheritance to be found? These are important questions that Joseph had to wrestle with. No doubt from a worldly perspective, if Joseph looked out upon the land of Egypt and as Joseph considered his circumstances, the future looked more bright for his children if indeed their future would be in Egypt. Indeed, they were in a powerful position there in that place, and the Hebrew people were small and weak and poor by comparison. I would imagine that it would have been tempting for Joseph to align himself with the Egyptians and to envision Egypt as being the place where his sons, Ephraim and Manasseh, would enjoy their inheritance. Again, think of the power, prestige, and wealth that Joseph had gained in Egypt and compare that with the very humble estate of the Hebrews. Indeed, these Hebrews would become slaves in Egypt, and yet Jacob spoke to Joseph saying, You and the boys belong to me. You are mine. And I do think there is a point of application for the Israel of God in this new covenant age to consider. The question for us is, with whom will we align With whom will we identify? Do we look out upon the world, that is the kingdoms and cultures of this world, and say, I am with them? Or do we look upon the people of God, those who have been chosen, called, and redeemed, and say, I am with them? There have been times when bearing the name Christian has brought with it respect from the world. That is true. But quite often, bearing the name of Christ brings reproach instead. Quite often, the world has disdain for the one who has faith in Christ. And so what I am asking you, young and old, I am asking, will you bear the name Christian? Will you identify with the people of God? Will you do this, even if it costs you? Even if, worldly speaking, the future doesn't look so bright for you as a Christian, will you do it? And more than that, and here I speak to parents in particular, will you teach your children who you love so dearly that this is the best way? And I think here is the real test. It is one thing for you to decide to suffer for the name of Christ. It is one thing for you to decide to pass up on certain opportunities to prosper in this world for the sake of Christ. But it's quite another thing for you to look at your children whom you love so dearly and to say to them, Son, Daughter, it is worth it to follow after Christ in this world. Jesus spoke to His disciples saying that they were to deny themselves and take up their cross and follow after Him. For whatever or for whoever would save His life will lose it, but whoever loses His life for Christ's sake will find it. That is Matthew 16, 24 and 25. And friends, the one who understands something of the mysteries of the kingdom of God knows that living for God and for His kingdom is truly better. It is a better investment, even if it means suffering the loss of everything that this world has to offer. I am saying that Joseph understood that. He looked out upon the kingdom of Egypt. There he had great power, prestige, and wealth, and honor. His sons were in a position also of privilege in that place. And then he looked out upon the Hebrew people, 
that little clan that was set off from the population in Egypt, that little clan that would grow into a great nation, but through enduring bondage and, and slavery for a time, and Joseph knew it, that it was better for him and even for his children to align with the Hebrews than with the Egyptians. For there amongst the Hebrews, the kingdom of God would be established. He knew it. And so too did Ephraim and Manasseh evidently. For when Israel did finally emerge from Egypt in the days of Moses, the descendants of Ephraim and Manasseh were there with them during that Exodus event. This would come, become clear as Ephraim and Manasseh were listed amongst the twelve tribes of Israel. And in other words, what these men did, these sons of Joseph, they threw in their lot with the Hebrews in fulfillment to what Jacob said to Joseph. Truly they aligned with the Hebrew people. Three, notice that Jacob was concerned to remind Joseph of where he was from and where his treasure should be. We see this at the end of verse 6 where Jacob speaks of the inheritance that Ephraim and Manasseh will receive. He is referring, of course, to a portion of the land of Canaan. We see this again in verse 21 where Israel said to Joseph, Behold, I am about to die, but God will be with you and will bring you again to the land of your fathers. Moreover, I have given you rather than your brothers one mountain slope that I took from the hand of the Amorites with my sword and with my bow. Again, it was as if Jacob was saying to Joseph, When you think of the future, do not think of Egypt. Think instead of Canaan. Think of that land that has been promised to us. The descendants of Ephraim and Manasseh will have a portion, not here in Egypt, but in that land. You too will have a portion there. In fact, I have given to you rather than to your brothers this one mountain slope. Isn't that interesting? The patriarchs owned very little land in Canaan. They did not possess it yet. It was still theirs in the form of promise. But there was a burial place for them there. And evidently there was this one mountain slope. And Jacob looked at Joseph and says, I'm giving it to you. Why, why jo Joseph? Well, we do know that Joseph was the beloved son of Jacob. You have that. But also he was the most Egyptian of all the sons. He grew up there. He had power and prestige there. It's as if Jacob was giving that to Joseph so as to exhort him, to encourage him. Make that the place where your, your treasure is. Your heart needs to be there, Joseph, and not here in Egypt. I think that was the message being sent to, to Joseph. Egypt is not our home. Here is a kind of down payment to remind you of that. Fix your eyes upon that land and set your heart there. And of course, we know that when the patriarchs set their heart upon the land of Canaan, they were in fact, setting their hearts upon the kingdom of God that would be consummated in the new heavens and new earth at the end of time. Are you following along with me? When the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, set their heart in Canaan, that was not ultimately where their hope was. Their hope was in God and in the new heavens and new earth that would come at the end of time. This is what the New Testament explicitly teaches the New Testament teaches us and makes abundantly clear that Abraham himself, when he thought about Canaan and the promises of God delivered to him, looked forward 
to the city that has foundations whose designer and builder is God, Hebrews 11.10. That whole passage there is explaining to us and in other places in the book of Hebrews that Abraham saw by faith the new heavens and new earth. He understood that God was establishing His kingdom there in Canaan and through the Israelite people. That was true. But this kingdom would reach its consummation, not there in that place, but would spread to all the earth under the new covenant age and would come to completion in the new heavens and new earth. Abraham looked forward to that. Isaac to that. Israel also to that. That is where their hope was fixed. And here we see Jacob encouraging his beloved son Joseph to do the same, to not set down his roots in Egypt, but to know that even he was a sojourner in that place and one day would return through his descendants to the land of Canaan to inherit it for all eternity. I think it is very appropriate for me, therefore, to exhort you in a similar way. It is right that I exhort you, just as Jacob exhorted Joseph, Ephraim, and Manasseh, I think it is good for me to say to you, Israel of God, do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, be it in Egypt or in the United States of America or in some other place, where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also." The words of Christ as recorded in Matthew six nineteen through 21. I think it is amazing to see the strength of Jacob's faith in his last days on earth. He remembered God's precious promises, as we have already seen. He was confident that they would come true. He truly believed that he and his many descendants would inherit Canaan. And in his dying days, Jacob rather was concerned to stir up the same hope within Joseph and his two sons. Now, let us consider for for a very brief moment the blessing that Jacob pronounced upon Manasseh and Ephraim. We see here that Jacob was overjoyed to meet the boys. He spoke to Joseph saying, I never expected to see your face. You know, I, I, I thought that I would go down to the grave, never seen you again, but God has let me see your offspring also. Notice here that Jacob's sight was so bad that he could not tell who the boys were. We are to remember that Isaac also, his sight was failing in his latter years when he went to bless uh, Jacob and Esau and all that came of that. He had to ask Joseph, who are the boys? His eyesight was so poor that he could not tell the difference between the two. Uh, Remember that in the story of Isaac, when he blessed Jacob and Esau, Isaac was taken advantage of because of his poor sight. Jacob deceived him and stole the blessing of the firstborn. That narrative is to be on our minds, I think. But notice that Jacob, like his father Isaac, also blessed the younger over the older. But this he did willingly and not because he was deceived. Joseph brought the boys to Jacob in the proper position, with the older to Jacob's right hand and the younger to Jacob's left. But when Jacob pronounced the blessing, he actually crossed his hands and placed his right hand on the younger and his left hand on the older. Joseph protested about this, saying, Not this way, my father, since this one is the firstborn. Put your hand on his head. But his father refused and said, I know, my son, I know. He also shall become a people, and he also shall be great. Nevertheless, his younger brother shall be greater than he, and his offspring shall become a multitude of nations. 
This theme, friends, has been present within Genesis ever since Abel was chosen over Cain. We are reminded here that God's ways are not our ways. His way is to choose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise, to choose what is weak in the world to shame the strong, and to choose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. 1 Corinthians 1, 27-29 You must recognize that in these little stories, we are being taught things that are true of God. Uh, these truths about God are, are being established. The, the way that He has determined to work in the world is being put on display here so that later generations might not be surprised by God's activities, right? And so even in the book of Genesis, we see this constant theme that the, the, the younger is, is, is blessed over and against the older, which is not the way of the world, but God's ways are not our ways, So it is with our calling, brothers and sisters. He has chosen and blessed us by His grace alone. There is therefore no room for boasting within us. When Jacob blessed the boys, he really blessed Joseph. And I think this blessing is very beautiful. Listen to it carefully. I won't have time to comment much on it. But here is what Jacob said to Joseph as he blessed Ephraim and Manasseh. These were his final words to Joseph. The God before whom my fathers Abraham and Isaac walked, the God who has been my shepherd all my life long to this day. I hope you are able to recall the story of Jacob. What what does Jacob say? This God has been my shepherd all my life long to this day. And the angel who has redeemed me from all evil, bless the boys. And he says, in them let my name be carried on. And the name of my fathers, Abraham and Isaac, and let them grow into a multitude in the midst of the earth. You know, this sounds like the kind of blessing that any father would want to pronounce upon his children. Uh, It is kind of generic in that sense. Um, But it's an especially important blessing, considering that it's coming from Jacob, one of the patriarchs. Jacob, being mindful of the promises of God given to Abraham, Isaac, and to himself, being mindful of the special role that the Hebrew people would play in the history of the world, it is especially important to notice this blessing. He is blessing these boys so that they might carry on the name of his fathers and so that they might grow into a multitude in the midst of all the earth. He knew that Israel, the nation that would descend from him, would have a particular role to play amongst the nations of the earth. As I have said, this blessing would come to fulfillment when Moses would lead Israel out of Egypt hundreds of years later. And when Joshua would lead the people into the promised land, two of the tribes of, e- of Israel were called Ephraim and Manasseh. Let us now turn our attention to the testimony of Jacob concerning his twelve sons in 49, 1-28. through 28. Notice that I have called this a testimony and not a blessing. The scriptures do call it a blessing, I think there is an issue there with translating from Hebrew into the English language. It was a blessing of sorts, but the reason I have called it a testimony is because not all that Jacob said to his sons can be regarded as a, as a blessing, technically speaking. In fact, Jacob had some very hard things to say to some of them. I'm sure you noticed in the reading of it. This was particularly true for his oldest son, Reuben. I will not comment on what was said to each of Jacob's sons, 
it is to be understood uh, generally that Jacob's words to each of his sons were fulfilled in some way in the history of the twelve tribes of Israel. And this is what Jacob intended. He spoke to his sons, saying, Gather yourselves together, that I may tell you what shall happen to you in the days to come. And so these words pertain not only to these individual men, but to their descendants also. He said, Assemble and listen, O sons of Jacob, listen to Israel, your father. And for the sake of time, I will focus only upon five of the sons. They are the ones who are, in fact, emphasized in the text. One, notice that Reuben received a firm rebuke from his father on account of his wicked behavior. We might expect the firstborn to receive the greatest blessing. Instead, Jacob said to Reuben, and this was quite the rebuke, You are my firstborn, my might and the first fruit of my strength, preeminent in dignity and preeminent in power, unstable as water. You shall not have preeminence because you went up to your father's bed. Then you defiled it. He went up to my couch. Jacob exclaims out of righteous anger concerning the wickedness of Reuben. Joseph was known for his faithfulness and his stability, as we will see. But Reuben was known for his lack of it. He was an unstable man. He lacked self-control and was driven by his passions. Brothers and sisters, let us not be like Reuben. Two, Simeon and Levi are addressed together. They are are called brothers in this passage. We might say, well, aren't all of these men brothers, either full or half? And the answer is yes, they are. But Levi and Simeon were allied with one another in some way. Uh, They had a kind of common bond, a pact of some sort. Their father rebuked them, notice, for their anger For their violence and cruelty, saying, Simeon and Levi are brothers, weapons of violence are their swords. And then he says, Let my soul come not into their counsel. O my glory, be not joined to their company. For in their anger they killed men and did many wicked things. Once again, it must be acknowledged that Israel was chosen of the Lord by God's grace and not because of some inherent goodness in them. We see in Reuben, in Simeon and Levi that these were not good men. In Simeon and Levi, we see the danger of allowing anger to drive us. A man or woman who is quick to anger will produce damage and division everywhere they go. They cannot be trusted And Jacob wanted nothing to do with them, saying, O my glory, be not joined to their company. Do not be allied with them. Now consider Judah. The blessing pronounced upon him was magnificent. Uh, This too was by the grace of God, for Judah was not a good man in his earlier years. This we have learned. But we did witness a transformation in him, remember, The blessing pronounced upon Judah would be fulfilled in King David and also in the Messiah who would descend from him. Listen carefully, beginning again at verse 8, to this blessing pronounced upon Judah and think of King David, think of the kings that would descend from him, think ultimately of the Messiah who would descend from Judah and from David. Judah, your brothers shall praise you. 
Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's son shall bow down before you. Judah is a lion's cub from the prey, my son. You have gone up. He stooped down. He crouched as a lion, as a lioness. Who dares rouse him? The scepter, that is his rule, shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until tribute comes to him. And to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. Binding his foal to the vine and his donkey's colt to the choice vine, he has washed his garments in wine and his vesture in the blood of grapes. His eyes are darker than wine and his teeth whiter than milk. As I have said, Judah would have preeminence within Israel. King David would descend from him. And even more significantly, Jesus the Christ, who is the Lion of the tribe of Judah, the King of kings and Lord of lords, would descend from him. Lastly, Consider the blessing pronounced upon beloved Joseph. His is the most elaborate. It is also the most complex. The blessing is also fitting. It it highlights Joseph's faithfulness and consistency in the face of much opposition. Verse 22 again, listen. Joseph is a fruitful bow, a fruitful bow by a spring. His branches run over the wall. The archers bitterly attacked him, shot at him, and harassed him severely. This was certainly true of Joseph's life. Yet his bow remained unmoved. His arms were made agile by the hands of the mighty one of Jacob. For there is the shepherd, the stone of Israel, by the God of your father who will help you, by the Almighty who will bless you with blessings of heaven above, blessings of the deep that crouches beneath, blessings of the breasts and of the womb. The blessings of your father are mighty beyond the blessings of my parents, up to the bounties of the everlasting hills." May they be on the head of Joseph and on the brow of him who was set apart from his brothers. Uh, What a beautiful blessing, fitting for the man Joseph, who remains steadfast, constant, resolute, unmoved in the face of so much opposition. The tribe of Joseph in Israel was divided into two, the half-tribe of Ephraim and Manasseh, his two sons. And again, these Words concerning Joseph would find their historical fulfillment in those tribes. In verse 28 we read, All these are the twelve tribes of Israel. This is what their father said to them as he blessed them, blessing each with the blessing suitable to him. As I considered what Jacob said to each of his sons, the thought occurred to me, what would people say of me at the end of my life if they were given the opportunity and if they were honest. What kind of blessing, or lack thereof, curse, would be suitable to me? And I think it is important for me to ask you the same question. What would people say about you after your life is lived, after your story is told, after your book is written, earthly speaking? What would people say about you? Even more important... What will God say about you when all is said and done? Will you hear those words of commendation, Well done, my good and faithful servant. Or will you hear words of condemnation, I never knew you, depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. So often we get caught up into our, in our day-to-day routines, don't we, brothers and sisters, that we fail to think about our lives in general, the big picture, What is the story that we are writing? Uh, What is is it that we are devoting ourselves to? Are we faithful to the Lord? I think these are important questions for us to consider. It must have been difficult for Reuben, for Levi and Simeon in that moment to hear their father's final words to them delivered as a 
as a, as a rebuke to them for their wickedness. Perhaps the Lord used it for good. I don't know. But how wonderful it must have been for, for Joseph and for Judah and for some of the others to hear those words of commendation coming to them from their beloved father. May it be so for us that when all is said and done, we stand before the Lord and receive a commendation as opposed to condemnation from Him. Judah should give us hope, I think. In Judah, we see a man who did not start well at the beginning. He did not start well, but he did finish well, and he was blessed in the end. Perhaps it is true of you that you did not start well. May you find hope in Judah. Uh, there is always room for repentance. There is room for a change of direction. I would urge you even in this time, if you are heading in the wrong direction, to stop and to turn from your sin and to look for Christ, to look to Christ and to live for His glory. Also in Judah we find the Christ, the true Son of David, the Messiah and our Savior, who has atoned for all of our sins. May we be found in Him on that last day, for apart from Him there is no hope, only the sure expectation of judgment. Lastly, and very briefly, let us consider the final preparations of Jacob before his death. One, notice his insistence on being buried in Canaan, in that cave that is in the field of Mechpelah, where his ancestors and his wife Leah were buried. Again, Canaan was home to Jacob. His hope and his heart were there because of the promises of God. He said, do not bury me here, but take me back there Bury me with my ancestors, for I know there my people will be in due time. His hope was set there. Two, notice that Jacob expected to see his loved ones after his death. I am to be gathered to my people, he said. And then after Jacob breathed his last, he was said to be gathered to his people. Of course, this expression means that Jacob died and was buried, just as those who had gone before him had been. But more than that, Jacob went on living his body died, but his, but his soul was gathered to his people. He enjoyed life after death, and he expected to enjoy life after death. This reminds me of what Jesus said when refuting the Sadducees, who taught that there was no resurrection, no life after death. In Matthew twenty-two twenty-nine, Jesus answered them, saying, You are wrong. Because you know neither the Scriptures nor the power of God. For in the resurrection they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. There was some question to him regarding marriage in, in heaven. And as for the resurrection of the dead, you have not read what was said to you by God, citing Moses in Exodus 3.6. I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He is not God of the dead, but of the living. And when the crowd heard it, they were astonished at his teaching. What was Jesus' point? His point was that when Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob died, when they passed from this world, God was still their God, for He is the God of the living and not of the dead. In the days of Moses, God still referred to Himself as the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Why? Because they were not gone. They were not they did not cease to exist when they passed from this world, but they were in His presence even then. They went to their people. They were joined with the people of God and enjoyed the presence of God even 
after they passed from this world, even in the days of Moses. This we must remember, brothers and sisters, that life does not end when we experience that physical death and pass from this world bodily. In fact, all go on living. All go on living according to the Spirit. Friends, when we breathe our last breath on this earth, it is not the end. The human soul goes on living, and according to the Scripture, the body will be raised on the last day when Christ returns and is reunited with the soul. And this is not only true for those in Christ, but it is also true for those who are in their sin. We read that there is death and then comes the judgment. When the Son of Man comes in His glory and all the angels with them, then He will sit on His glorious throne. Before Him will be gathered all the nations and He will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And He will place the sheep on His right, but the goats on the left. Then the King will say to those on His right, Come, you who are blessed by My Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. When Jacob breathed his last, he was gathered to his people. He went to Abraham and Isaac, whose faith he had. Jacob, like those who went before him, had his sins forgiven by believing upon the promises of God concerning the coming Messiah. Like Abraham, Jacob was justified by faith. He, like Abraham, believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. And when he passed from this world, he was truly gathered to his people. What will it be for you, friends? Who will you see when you pass from this world? Will you be amongst the sheep, that is to say, those of faith cleansed by the blood of Jesus? Or will you be amongst the goats, that is to say, those still in their sins and awaiting the judgment of God? This is a serious and sobering question, but it is one that must be considered, for it is appointed for men to die once, and after that comes judgment, Hebrews 9.27 says. Will you stand before God clothed in your guilt and sin or in the righteousness of Christ received by faith? I do pray that it is the latter of these two things and not the former. May you be found in Christ, not having a righteousness of your own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends upon faith. Philippians 3.9 Here in Genesis 48 and 49, we have considered Israel in embryonic form. So too our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ is here. He is in the loins of Jacob and Judah. And in the fullness of time, He would be born into the world to live and to die and to rise again for sinners. And may we be found in Him. Let's bow together for a word of prayer. Father, we give You praise for your plan of redemption, which we have seen the outworking of here in the pages of Genesis, the beginning stages of it at least. We give you thanks for your plan of redemption, that though we as your people have sinned against you, though we in our natural self stand guilty before you, you have determined to save sinners. And we are thankful for this. We thank you that you called Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, that you set them apart. We thank you that you took Israel in embryonic form down into Egypt to grow there and that you brought them out again and did in fact give them Canaan and did in fact make a mighty nation of them. 
We thank you that through them, the Messiah, the Christ, came into the world. And through Him, we have the forgiveness of sins. We thank you for this plan of redemption and for the privilege to look upon the outworking of it as recorded in the pages of Holy Scripture. Lord, increase our faith in Christ. May we see just how good you are to us. May we understand what it is that you have done for us so that we might be reconciled to you and made to be sons and daughters of God. Father, help us to walk faithfully with you in this world as your people so that you might receive all glory, honor, and praise. It's in the name of Christ that we say these things and all of God's people say, Amen.